For as long as I've known the NBA, it's been a stars league. But even among the stars, there's an exclusive club. Russell, Dr. J, Jordan, Kobe. They're all part of a select group that paved the way for the NBA superstar of today. And some even shared secrets with each other along the way. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Jackie McMullen, and this is the Icons Club. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. Poppin', real ones, Logan Murdoch. Nope, it's not him. He's not here. He'll be back next week. So I got a special, 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 special guest host um, for our Real Ones Thursday edition. One of my OGs, LA Daily News, New York Times, Bleacher Report, now with Sports Illustrated. Howard Beck, how you doing, buddy? What up, Logan? Great to uh, see you and hear you again. Got We got to spend some quality time in my borough recently Mm -hmm. but uh good to connect again so soon this is great this is awesome man uh, just full disclosure for all my real ones out there howard showed me a great time in the world's best borough sorry i don't want to say that messed up world's best borough of brooklyn in the city of brooklyn it was great man i had a blast it was fun I got to come back soon, man. It was great. It was a great time. You do. Time. You do. We we have at least like 700 more great restaurants you could come hang out at. So we got some good food. I'm ready to go. Um, but I, I wanted to get you in because uh, I want to talk about a lot of stuff. But first thing, you have been all over the um, Phoenix Sun story uh, uh, centered around Robert Sarver and uh, Al Sharpton. Let me just give some um, some quick background on that. Al Sharpton and a, and a coalition of social justice activists are demanding the ouster of Robert Sarver in the wake of, you know, allegations from a ba- uh, Baxter Holmes piece uh, alleging instances of sexist and racist behavior. Now, you talk, talk to Al Sharpton about this, um, and they have Al has been on the phone with Mark Tatum, uh, deputy commissioner of the league, saying that he will 
bring demonstrations to Phoenix if the uh, investigation um, into Sarver's uh, alleged behavior has not either come to a close or there hasn't been substantial progress made. Now, my first question to you, Howard, is why at this point is Al speaking out after this happened in November? And there's been a lot of time that has passed since the, that that uh, bombshell story came out. Why now does he um, want to put Sarver's feet to the fire? It's, it's a great question, Logan, because it is the question that I think I had myself, maybe a lot of folks did in the months and even the weeks um, following Baxter's report back in early November, right? Because that report hits and it's a huge impact. It is all the talk of the NBA, Robert Sarver being accused of multiple instances of racist, sexist, uh, and just general, generally abusive behavior. And Baxter Holmes talked to 70 plus people for that story. It's, it's well reported out. Um, the league knew this was coming. Everybody kind of knew this was coming. And you would expect in the wake of that for there to have been an outcry almost immediately, right? Like when we think back to what happened with Donald Sterling and the Clippers in 2014, immediate outcry from civil rights activists, immediate outcry from players and the Players Association, LeBron weighing in right off the bat, the Clippers staging kind of a demonstration with their jerseys turned inside out during a playoff game. There was talk of a possible player boycott in the midst of the playoffs. There was talk of sponsor boycotts. A lot happened, and a lot happened very quickly in 2014 with Donald Sterling. And what we saw in this instance, and we can get into the why, because it's a, there's an obvious why here, but it's still, it's, 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 a, it's a worthy discussion. But in this instance, we saw none of that. Right. Like there was a, a a pretty muted response. Like there was uh, some discussion in the immediate days after it, probably a lot of chatter on in the usual places, debate shows, talk shows, whatever. And then it just went away. So to answer your question, like, why is the Reverend Al Sharpton and his National Action Network and this new coalition calling itself uh, ASAP uh, pushing this now? It's because it's been four months. It's because there has been no indication yet that the NBA and it's the law firm that it hired to conduct its investigation is wrapping up anytime soon. And so the concern among the activists, and I would assume a lot of other folks around the league, and I can tell you for sure, the concern among a lot of Phoenix Suns current and former employees is that this thing is just kind of quietly fading away. And that is why uh, this coalition formed last week, put out a statement, sent sent a, a letter to Adam Silver and why Al Sharpton got on the phone with Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum, because they are concerned that this is going to kind of be swept under the rug. And so there's there's two pr- uh, aspects of this pressure that they're that they're putting on the league right now. One is they want Robert Sarver out on the belief that these 70 plus people that we've already seen, uh, you know, or heard from in Baxter Holmes' story back in November, that that those are uh, legitimate and voluminous concerns and, and, and instances of, of bad behavior by Robert Sarver. On that basis alone, these folks believe Sarver should be removed. At a minimum, they believe this report <laughs> needs to come out soon because it's been four months. Now, the league's response, and it's, a, and it's the understandable one, and it's a rational one, is, hey, 
we've interviewed over 300 plus people for this investigation or the law firm working on the, the MBA's behalf. If you're going to do this right, if you're going to be thorough, you got to you got to talk to everybody who has something to to contribute to this discussion and tracking down all those people, meeting with them, follow-up meetings, I'm sure. It does take time. I understand that. And I think the activists I spoke to, including Sharpton last week, certainly understand that. But nevertheless, four months is a long time. And one other quick data point here before uh, I, I, you know, uh, stop rambling. (laughs) Um, It took like, I think, four days between the time that Donald Sterling, that that audio tape came out of him making a bunch of racist remarks and the time that Adam Silver said he's banished for life. Now, the process of actually removing him took a lot longer, right? There were a lot of mechanics involved in all that, and it's not easy to remove an owner in the NBA. But Adam Silver's declaration that Sterling is finished, we'll figure out the details later, but you are done? That came within days after that audio tape surfaced. And here we are four months later. Again, different circumstances. We can get into that. But that is where the frustration and the concern of the activists comes into play. That's why they're bringing to bear the pressure right now because they believe that this has is dragged on too long and it, for political purposes i think or publicity purposes no better time than to start putting on the pressure just as the suns are heading to the playoffs with nba championship hopes exactly and i, I think um you know i'm not going to say that protesting is the last option but it is one of the options that where you that's where you put all the cards on the table if you're al sharpton and i one of the questions that I have is what is progress in his eyes? Did you get a did you get a sense of what he is looking for, even if the investigation isn't over per se in the time span that he needs? I think he said what three weeks. Um to it's if he wants to see progress in three weeks, what is progress to him? Um, is it a statement that this is what we found so far, and then we will give you another statement? What what does that mean to him? Did you get an idea of that when you talked to him on the phone? That part's a little bit uh, harder to ascertain. Um, I have a sense of it, I guess. Um, But so I think it's April 9th is when Al Sharpton's uh, National Action Network has its convention, I believe, here in New York. And he basically has said or said to me last week, we want answers by then. Either the investigation is complete. And and there's a there's a response and, the, and, a, and a decision by the league or, an, or a, a direction by the league as to what they're going to do to address these issues with the Suns and Robert Sarver, or that there's at, at a minimum some indication from the NBA about when that uh, investigation will um, will come to a conclusion. So it puts the NBA in an interesting position, right? Because I, I don't know how much longer this this law firm believes it needs. Uh, the NBA is not certainly making that. Uh, public. So is it days, weeks, still months? If the NBA, uh, you know, delivers word to to Al Sharpton and his coalition that, listen, uh, I know April 9th is coming and your convention, this is the deadline you set, you're, that you're going to, you know, and, and I think that the way that Sharpton framed it was that if nothing's done, then we will be taking this up at our convention and, and acting on, on or, or make a decision on how we are going to respond. And that's when he's saying we may be coming to Phoenix with with protests and everything. So does does Mark Tatum or Adam Silver picking up the phone on April 8th and calling Al Sharp and saying, listen, we're still not there yet, but we think we're wrapping by April 17th or by the end of April or something's coming soon. Is that enough for Sharpton and his coalition to hold off on any direct actions? Uh, only they know that. I, I, I don't know... I don't know what level of information or action by the NBA will be sufficient to head off 
potential protests uh, in mid-April in Phoenix. So that's an interesting thing for all of us, obviously, to keep an eye on. And then, of course, there's the other possibility, which is they do wrap it up. They issue the report and the report says inconclusive. Something happened. We're not sure what. And uh, here's a fine. You know, here's here's some some something far short of expulsion or recommended expulsion from the league. What does the coalition do at that stage? Again, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I suspect that people are going to be uh, pretty unhappy if this looks like just a slap on the wrist after what we've read so far. Now, we talked about this in, 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 in passing. We talked about this, I think, last week when we were, you know, going to one of your famed restaurants um, <laughs> that you can, we can talk about later. Um, when we think about uh, Adam Silver as a guy that really made his name on social justice and within his first few months, I'll seen a racist owner. Is there pressure on him? In a, in a in a sense right now to get this right considering all the all the goodwill he is he is you know gained from the players perspective with these social justice issues we talk about not just the um not just the Donald Sterling but what happened in the bubble and really putting those measures and donating money and putting all the those measures to bring more awareness to social justice and black lives matters causes does he have pressure on him to get how much pressure does he have on him to get this right in your eyes Oh, I think there's considerable pressure on Adam Silver to get this right, you know, and and we should put get this right in quotes, right? Like, what does getting this right mean? And that will that might mean different things to different people. And I should, uh, you know, again, just you know, uh, qualify this discussion as saying if these things are proven to have happened, right? And what is proof, right? And this is where we get into the the nuances of why the Sterling case is maybe landing differently with people. And having a different uh, impact than the Sarver one from this, the get go, it, it's 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 like it's like with Rodney King, it's like with George Floyd. When we have video evidence or audio evidence, we the public and especially the broader public react differently than it's just when it's just an investigative report in which there's a lot of people, mostly anonymous, saying this person did these things, I heard these things, I saw these things. I don't know that that's a fair standard. Certainly, Al Sharpton and the activists who I spoke with last week would say it's not a fair standard. You can't expect everybody to have an audio tape or a videotape and for that to be the only way that we ever get justice in this world. Well, the funny thing is, when you talk about um, Sterling, is there were reports out there that he was a racist <laughs> yes. and and all in the newspaper. I mean, you can go to the L.A. Times archives right now and see um accusations of racism and and housing discrimination and all these things for years and it didn't take it, it took a it took a, a audio recording so it, it's it i don't i don't know where, and it also i think that and i want to get your opinion on on this it does seem like there's a it was just a, when sterling came the sterling tapes came out it was just a perfect storm of things happening. It was the middle of the playoffs. It was in Los Angeles, which we both know is a a bit more, uh, is a, a very liberal place, at least a lot more liberal than Arizona, right? And you have a, a place that has had long history of protesting, protest against racism. And then you have him going at Magic Johnson, who is a huge figure, not only in Los Angeles, but the rest of the uh, rest of the league. It's, it almost seems like with Sarver, not to say that no one cares, but 
it's not as many eyes on him when he does when he does these things. He's not in Los Angeles. He's not in a New York. He's not in a place where this will get traction every single day, no matter how much it's reported on it. it and that seems discouraging. I mean, I think all that feeds into it. But I think, Logan, more than anything, more than it being the city or the politics of the city, the demographics of the city, um, size of market, and like all those things. I think are relevant. And I think you're, you're, you're right to, to note those distinctions too, for sure. But I, I do think that if there's one thing that, that is the, the most glaring difference, it is existence of audio tape versus lack of audio tape, right? Like if, if, if somebody, if the people who are, uh, alleging these things that Sarver did and said, and there is, by the way, there is a videotape, which SI has published, uh, you know, a portion of, of Sarver making some, uh, you know, pretty lewd, offensive kind of remarks at a memorial for a friend of his. That is a piece, right? But it is not, it's not essential to what Baxter Holmes' story had, which was a lot of, you know, multiple instances, alleged instances of racism and, and misogyny. That audio or that videotape of the memorial and Sarver speaking there, you know, has elements of some of that, but it is not the same thing as the smoking gun of somebody dropping the N-word or somebody saying things that are just outright blatantly racist as Donald Sterling did on that tape. So I do think that this the biggest difference is this so far lack of physical evidence. Now, for all we know, this law firm maybe has uncovered something. Maybe somebody does have a tape somewhere and we just don't know yet because that report is still in progress. But in the absence of that, it just feels like the visceral reaction by the public at large is different. It's just fundamentally different. It's harder for people to be certain about it because, you know, like there's, there's that skepticism, right? Well, what are, who are all these anonymous people? You know, uh, what are their motives, right? Like that, the, yeah. the, the stuff that we always, the, the stuff that we always kind of get when these types of stories yeah. come out, which again, arguably is an unfair standard when burden to bear for people who are victims or even alleged victims, however you want to frame this, of racism and sexism and workplace abuse. That's an unfair burden for people to have to, 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 to have to produce an audio tape or videotape. Like we're all supposed to be walking around recording everything at all times, just in case. I mean, it, it's, that gets into a, a lot of, you know, complicated uh, issues there. So, um, but to get back to, to Adam Silver then, I would say in 2014, and not to diminish at all how difficult a step it was, unprecedented as far as I know in NBA history, to take this kind of action to remove an owner. That was not easy. And to get all the other owners to do it, because Adam Silver can't do that unilaterally. He needed a, a, a majority of the board of governors of the other owners. And I think it was more than just a majority, obviously. I, I don't know if, I can't remember if that was a two-thirds thing or whatever. And you had people like Mark Cuban, the Mavericks owner, saying at the time, before those actions were taken, it's a slippery slope and everybody might have something. And so we got to be careful. He voiced something that I think probably all the other owners felt right um and so it's not it's not to diminish or to say it was easy what adam silver did but i will say he made the only decision he could make which is to say when the players are on the verge of a potential strike in the middle of the playoffs or boycotting a playoff game when you have sponsors that are threatening to pull out and and i think some actually did pull out of of you know at least from the clippers not from the nba at large when you have this just national outcry because everybody could hear the audio and did over and over and over again after TMZ released it, 
you at that point you have no choice, right? So again, not yeah. to diminish how how difficult it was for Adam Silver to pull it off or the strength it took to lead that charge and to get the board of governors to go along with him. But in a way, it was the only thing he could have done. This is a little bit more ambiguous. Again, I don't want to say that it's fair to make this standard the standard, but in absence of a videotape or audio tape that 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 causes everybody to feel this can only go one direction and to bring to bear the pressure that sponsors do and that players do. The players have been fairly silent on this. The Players Association has taken a wait-and-see approach on this. So if the Players Association doesn't push on this, if the players don't push on this, it 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 gives Adam Silver and the Board of Governors an avenue to take a much a much less extreme stance. They they can they can let this go. I'm not suggesting that's where what will happen. But again, why is this coming to to the fore now? Why are activists like Al Sharpton making this an issue now? Because that's what they fear. Absence of a videotape, man. It, it's 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 tale uh, a tale old as time. But we'll see what happens. This is very interesting. I know that the league does not want a protest in in Phoenix. They do not want demonstrations during playoff games. Especially the thing with Al Sharpton is he brings attention to causes, and this will cause nationwide attention and just it's unwanted attention for the league. I know that's something that they do not want. No, but also think about this because I've, I've since these conversations last week and the stories that I wrote about this last week, I've thought about this a lot. Like. If the if the report wraps up soon, because think about like ideally this report should have landed two months ago, right? Just yeah. for for NBA for the NBA's image purposes and political purposes, right? The last time you want this thing to land is in the middle of the playoffs. Now, if the Suns were a lottery team, maybe you wouldn't care as much, right? There's gradations to all of this, but the Suns have the best record in the NBA, favored to go to the finals, could win it all, and. We're on, you know, we're on the eve of April, and and the playoffs are coming quick, and the report's not out yet. Again, they needed to be thorough. Got it. But so now, what do you do if you're the NBA? If you could plan when you wanted to release it, first round, no, bad idea. Second round, worse idea. The, as long as the Suns are still in it, unless they you got do it upset. in the playing games, like what do you do? Do you just do you do you try to <laughs> while everybody's focused on whether or not Friday LeBron James can get the Lakers yeah. into the playoffs? By the way, here's a report. Um, yeah, like there's no good like because we're already into the to the spring or or uh, are we officially in spring yet? It's not spring here Feels in New York like today. It. I'll tell you that. Not here. It's not it's not spring in Memphis. It is freezing, <laughs> but it is somewhere. <laughs> but it's once you've gotten this deep into the NBA calendar, there's no good time to release it. So, they have, you know, by by process or by choice, they have backed themselves into a corner because this is the last time you want to be releasing this even if the report is somehow inconclusive. It's still going to have a lot of details of things that were alleged to have happened and at least some things that they'll probably verify happened. And whatever form that takes, you don't want it coming out in the middle of the playoffs. And the deeper into the playoffs you get, the worse it is for the league to have to deal with that that negativity at a time that they are normally celebrating themselves, right? And if the Suns go out of the way of the finals, what are you, you're just going to keep pushing it off until... The summer? What if they win the championship? Are we going to go from the parade one day to the Sarver report landing the next day? Like, there's just no good time at this stage, especially when it's already taken this long. So, I mean, I, it's a it's a fascinating uh, kind of like meta discussion about how you handle these sorts of of things uh, and what the league will do. 
That's interesting. We got to have you on a, a, again when that report drops. Well, you, 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 at some point. But uh, let's take a quick break. I want to talk about. I want to talk about our trip in New York. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. And we are back. I'm here with Howard Beck. Beck, I was with you um, in Brooklyn. I went to some Nets games, just kicked it, was chilling. The sense I was starting to get when you talk to people, and it's coming to bear today, uh, was that there was a lot of hope that the NYC mandate for athletes and vaccinations was going to get lifted. There was just a lot of uh, hope. There was just some things out there. Um, they didn't, you know, everybody that I talked to, they didn't, they didn't have a concrete way of how it was going to happen. Some people thought it was going to happen from the unilaterally or at the state level. Um, but it happened to escalate pretty quickly, even though public officials in New York were like, no, it's, it's out indefinitely. This is, this is, this is going to be a indefinite, um, rule, um, that players can, players in New York, home players cannot go into facilities unless they are, cannot play sports or perform unless they are vaccinated. Um, but you, you start hearing these things and yesterday when I was at the uh, Grizzlies uh, Nets game during pregame, um, you know, you get the reports that uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams is going to phase out that mandate. Um, and now Kyrie is expected to play for the rest of the season home games. Um, and, you know, this is just doesn't affect Kyrie. It affects the Yankees with Aaron Judge, um, the Mets, whoever unvaccinated players that they have. I was only in New York for about a week. Did you see that? Did you sense this happening or is this coming as a surprise to you? Honestly, I'll say it's a little bit of a surprise. I mean, uh, Eric Adams, the new mayor, had been, uh, you know, pretty hard line about this, that he was not going to make exceptions. Just Call out for, Kyrie by name. Yeah. A few times. <laughs> a few times. And, you know, look, all of these issues with COVID, all of these policies, all these protocols and, and laws, everything that we have seen over the last two years, they're complicated. They're, they're difficult. Um, and they, they require balancing of a lot of different um, concerns and interests, you know, uh, public health versus employment versus any number of things, right? Like there's, it's, it's hard. So I, I'm not going to criticize the mayor for, um, the stance he took or for reversing it now necessarily um, is difficult. I wouldn't want to be in that position. But nevertheless, he was he was sticking to his guns this whole time. And now sudden, this is this is a bit out of the blue. And it does come as baseball season is bearing down. Eric Adams, also apparently a big Mets fan, um, uh, Mets with an M, uh, the baseball team. Um and this is affecting the Mets and Yankees too. And so suddenly here we are, it, like, it, it was never going to be reversed just for the Nets or for Kyrie. And by the way, like this affects all performers and athletes within New York City, not, but obviously not visiting performers, but only the people who are based here, which was always a weird kind of contradiction or inconsistency in the policy. Everybody understood that. But 
the idea was that, you know, look, if we're, if we're laying off 12, 1300 public workers over their refusal to get the vaccine, if we're requiring this for all of these other, uh, and the, and the law basically is, I think it's any, um, any company, any, any business that employs a hundred or more people had this, uh, mandate that everybody had to be vaccinated. Right. So that's the, the policy that was affecting, the uh, Kyrie Irving. If you're going to be consistent, you don't want to start carving it out exceptions just for sports teams or just for one player. Right. So now maybe it's look, if I'm, if I'm going to guess, and, and you know, as you and I are recording, I don't think the mayor has spoken yet today. We're waiting for the actual, uh, uh, official announcement of this and presumably the rationale behind it and behind the timing of it. It's going to be, it's going to be at city field, but for all of you yes. guys that are wondering, it's going to, it's what's this, What's at this? the Mets stadium. At the Mets stadium. He's a showman, isn't he? He's, he's a uh, bit of the, the Yeah. Oh, there's he, a lot at of At least showmen. he tries to pride pride himself and he prides himself in being a, a showman and that's pretty yeah, I, I don't I don't know what this mayoral administration will ultimately look like when all is said and done, but I guarantee you it's going to be an entertaining ride for the next few years here in New York. Um but you know, is is it is it that there's now more than you know? Like you can shroud it as it's not just about affecting Kyrie anymore, right? If you if you repeal this a few weeks ago, it feels like you're doing it for Kyrie. If you repeal it now, it's well, it's also affecting the Yankees and Mets as well as other performers. Also, we are that much further into this part of the cycle where infection rates are lower. They have been creeping up again, I believe, recently, but nowhere near what they were at the height of Omicron or at other junctures in the last two years. So it, it's it, like. You and I are not public health officials or epidemiologists, but I guess you could say that if there was a time to do it, this is a plausible time to do it. Whether it's defensible, I'll leave to the experts. Um, but look, uh, we, we may be days away from Kyrie Irving making his long-awaited home debut in the 2021-22 season. Well, it was funny because after the um, after the uh, the game last night in Memphis, um, Kyrie comes up to the podium and is like, I don't want to speak in hypotheticals. I don't want to. Sp- <laughs> I don't want to speak on what will or won't happen tomorrow. And our our friend Nick Fredell asks him, you know, just Love about Nick. like some just just a question around that, right? Just how do you feel about your stance throughout this whole time? And he goes, "I am not speaking in hypotheticals." <laughs> <laughs> but from a basketball standpoint. What does this do for the Nets? Because we both know this. We've been around you a long, a lot longer than I have, but we've been around NBA teams um, for quite a bit. And the biggest thing about teams in sports is they need a rhythm. And we both watched um, the Nets the other night together. It's hard for them to find a rhythm on a day-to-day basis, not only because of Kyrie, but a large chunk of it because of Kyrie and injuries and things of that nature. I just I'm I'm not convinced that they will go far in the playoffs at this very moment just seeing them just play for the small stretch that I've seen them play for the fact that they haven't had rhythm they've had guys in and out of the lineup. What do you see this brings Kyrie? What Kyrie coming into the fold, what does that bring the Nets? Do you think that that brings the Nets um closer to a title contending team right now or are you taking a wait and see approach that they have them full time now? And I don't remain skeptical be, uh, for, for anything that has anything to do with the talent or abilities or uh, or big game performance uh, abilities of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. They can get you out of almost any situation. They can manufacture points and manufacture shot opportunities that very few people in today's game or the history of the game have been able to do. That always gives you a chance. But 
you know, we've both been doing this a while. I've been doing this uh, a little longer. Got the grays in my beard to show it. Um, we talk every season about things like chemistry and rhythm and flow and camaraderie and all these intangibles that we believe, and not just us, this is not just some dumb media narrative, right? This is what the athletes themselves and coaches themselves will tell us year in and year out. These things matter. Then just say, well, we can just throw guys together with very little ramp up, very little time together and say, go and go win a championship. I, I think that's a stretch. Now, I said the same thing last season when the Nets only got eight games in the regular season with Harden, Durant, and Kyrie. And that team, despite injuries, still uh, you know, made a pretty good you know, run in the playoffs. And and if not for Kevin Durant's, you know, size 12 foot or whatever, blah, 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 you know, maybe size 12, fits. size 12 foot. No, it's not. It's not a size, size 12. 17, it's, 15. Where is it? I don't know. Whatever it's, it is. It's, it's massive. It's massive. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Shaq size 22s, I don't think. But whatever. If not for the extra quarter inch of his big toe or whatever. Um, so incredible elite talent and enough of it. I think can overcome a lot of things, but Kyrie having uh, been out for most of the season and them making this blockbuster trade where they ship out Harden for Ben Simmons, who still hasn't played, who might not play in the regular season. And at some point you're going to try to plug him in. Man, come on. Like that's, that is, that's too much for any team to do on the fly. Ben Simmons has not played a single second of a single game with the Brooklyn Nets. And it, this is not adding some shooter off the bench. Also, this isn't, has a herniated disc and just and got a herniated last disc. Week. No small like, thing. Yeah. Which, which was which was hilarious how that came out. Were you in the room when we when that when that when whole Steve back Nash, and forth with Nash? Yeah, that was yeah. It's this cat and mouse game. It's just bizarre. Like and, and, and NBA teams. Wow, well, I'm not going to go on that tangent about injuries and HIPAA and all this other BS that the NBA teams do to us. Um, but it, it's. It's too much to ask of this team. And by the way, it's not because Kyrie and Kevin Durant can't do it. We we, we saw them, you know, just uh, the game that you were just at, get pretty well spanked with the box score. Kevin Durant, he was 12 for 28, not the best of nights for him. Kyrie, 15 for 27, great night for him. Um, it's yeah, never 43. About, <laughs> right, but it's never about whether the stars can do it off of very little playing time together. It's how does that impact a Patty Mills or a Nick Claxton, Cam Thomas, Kessler Edwards, Andre Drummond, the rest of this supporting cast. And it's not like the greatest supporting cast in the world either, by the way. So those are the guys who need rhythm, who need to know where their shots are coming from and how to anticipate the moves of their stars and how to function as a unit because it's the role players who can't manufacture out of thin air and are relying on the offense to generate shots and to be rhythm shots. And uh, so... Like that's the concern. Not to mention defense. Defense is a lot about reading each other and and chemistry and muscle memory. And so uh, the idea that the Nets can go through a season like this, make their way through the play in, and then make a finals run, I, I just think is a huge stretch. On top of it, by the way, lest we forget, if the Nets finish eighth and the Raptors seventh, the Nets have to go to Toronto where Kyrie Irving still isn't eligible to play because he's not vaccinated. Are you saying Eric Adams isn't the mayor of um, Toronto? <laughs> he, he can't make that happen? Yes, I mean, 
Can, can Kyrie Irving get one more miracle law uh, changed before the play-in? I, I'm, I'm guessing not. Um, but yeah, like is that's still out there. He still, they still may have to go to Toronto without Kyrie because of his refusal to get vaccinated. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Now, I would like to ask you, because you have covered um, super teams, um, (laughs) for better or worse. how, when you think about, me and Roger talk about this all the time, um, just the evolution of what a super team is, especially with salary caps, it's so hard to build one if you're going to, you obviously want a star and a, 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 I think we were talking about this the other night, you said a, a top five guy and a top 15 guy if you want to be a title contender. Now, there's always the, 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 uh, the lore of getting another, a, number, a, a number three star on your roster instead of and not rounding it out and just going with, you know, we saw this in, in Brooklyn. What do you think we're going to look at for the, what do you think we're going to, how we're going to look back on this super team era? I'd say from like 08 to about now, when we talk about the Celtics into now, how are we going to look back at this? Do you think we're going to look back at it fondly or do you think it's going to be a, a, a how we look back and say, oh, we should probably have built teams a little differently going forward because there's so, it's so critical on injuries and health and things like that. And if you lose one star, you can just forget about it. How are we going to look back on this era, do you think? I mean, look, there's a certain fundamental truth in the NBA that talent wins. Elite talent wins like 98% of the time. The team with the best high end talent wins, wins a playoff series, wins a championship. Um, you can usually look up, like, there's very few times in NBA history, at least in, in my 25 years covering the league, where you look at the finals and go, Well, that was a surprise. Like, you knew, you, you know, going in pretty much who's going to win. You don't know if it's going to take four games, five or seven, but you usually know. And in most playoff series, there's an upset here, an upset there. Fewer in this era where we have best of seven first round instead of best of five first round. We, I, I, I will always uh, stump for going back to best of five first round. It was a lot more drama, a lot more exciting. Um, but the, the NBA has has legislated out, for the most part, 
the upset by having everything best be best of seven. So, okay, elite talent wins. The more elite talent, the better off you are. Probably, mostly, but not always, right? So what we've had in the super team era is teams scrambling to, let's start with the Celtics because the Celtics of Pierce, Ray Allen, and Kevin Garnett kick off this era, right? They get those two guys to put with Paul Pierce. They win a championship. They go to another finals in that time. I I would say that that is directly what triggered LeBron going to Miami to form a super team with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and on and on. So then you've got everybody trying to replicate it in various versions of it. Now, would teams have been doing that anyway? Because most teams are, are geared and most GMs are geared toward, if I could get my hands on a superstar, top five, top 10, top 15, wherever that is, that wherever those lines are, I'm going to go get that guy. But we did see a lot of like, we've seen some like fake super teams in the last, you know, 14 years too, since the Celtics kind of kicked off this era. And sometimes that lust for talent or marquee names leads you in the wrong direction. It certainly has for the Lakers with the Westbrook deal this season. And look, the jury's still out on, on what the Nets have done because they got Kyrie and Kevin Durant in a, in a single day of free agency a couple years back, right? Did they need James Harden as the third guy? I mean, was that, was that just a, a um, you know, was that too much? I, I certainly thought at the time, because I liked the idea of like Durant and Kyrie with some high-level role players, right? Like they had Spencer Dinwiddie still. They had Jared Allen and Karis LeVert and Joe Harris. And I thought those two like absolute stud scorers surrounded by a bunch of really high-level role players, I thought was a good formula. They wanted to go the super team route. And by the way, my own definition for super team, it's when you get the third star, third legit star. There's some fake versions of what this. About, as I what said. about what about the 2004 Lakers? Was that a super team, sir? Was that yeah. was that considered one? At, yes. I mean, I, I was yes. like, I don't want to tell you my age when that happened, but I know you were you were like three months old. I know, um, and exactly. I was, and I was already 72. Um, yeah. So that was my last year on the Laker beat was 0304. Carl Malone was still kicking ass in Utah before he he jumped over to the Lakers. And Gary Payton, while well, both he and and Carl Malone were were late in their careers. Gary Payton was was still a really effective player. I don't I don't think he I can't remember the last time he'd been an All Star before they signed him. Um, but yes, that was absolutely a super team, and I would say the the only super team during the Shaq Kobe era. Like when they got Glenn Rice, people's like, oh, he's the third star. Glenn Rice was was effectively a, like a glorified role player. Yes, he'd been like an All Star MVP during his Charlotte days, but that's not the Glenn Rice they got. Hey they man, never, he showed up in Game Two of the of the of the 2000 Finals. Okay, show some respect to Glenn Rice. He 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 showed up. He was easily replaced by Rick Fox, who they already had when they when they offloaded <laughs> Rice the next year. Um, I don't, don't I'm, I'm not I'm not buying any Glenn Rice mythology. I was there. Um, so, that's 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 the harshest. I was watching. I was watching the DVDs. I was watching the DVDs, and they said <laughs> they said that Glenn Rice was the savior of the Lakers in 2000. Howard Beck. So that's what. Please. Anyway, so like they didn't have super teams. They had it was it was Shaq and Kobe, and like you had two top five players plus a bunch of really good role players: Rick Fox, Robert Ory, Derek Fisher, Brian Shaw, Ron Harper, Horace Grant, all these guys. So when they when they make the move for Peyton and Malone, now you got four four future Hall of Famers, and like it's funny the narratives around that team, right? Because they lost, and so it was viewed at the time, and I think people still talk about it as. See, this is proof that you could have too much. And I think there's maybe a little bit to that. The real truth of it was Gary Payton was a really bad fit for the triangle. And 
you know, Peyton wasn't going to bend and neither was Phil Jackson. Carl Malone got hurt early in that season on a freak play, not because he was old, but just because I think it was Scott Williams uh, ran into him on the sidelines in Phoenix one day, messes up his knee. He's out for months. Carl Malone was the glue of that team. He was the only one keeping Shaq and Kobe from, you know, killing each other in the, in the, in the locker room in what was probably the, the most tense of all of their seasons together. Kobe's facing the sexual assault charge in Colorado. There's that going on. There's there was just a lot. It wasn't they were they were so top heavy with four future Hall of Famers who couldn't share the ball in the in the first twenty or whatever games when Carl Malone was playing. They were eighteen and two. They were destroying people. Like they looked like they might go eighty and two for the season. Like they were that team was amazing. Carl goes down. It changes everything. And by the end of the season, Phil Jackson's a lame duck. Jerry Buss has decided not to extend him. Um, Shaq is already hearing, he, and he had told me this on the side one day late in the season, saying they're going to trade me. And Kobe has flirted with free agency. Kobe has kind of half openly flirted with going to the Clippers in free agency. Like there's just a lot of stuff in the air. And this is not to diminish. I had this discussion with Chauncey one year because I'm like, I'm not just diminishing what you guys did, but a lot of shit that was going on. And so this idea that the, 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 like the, the, the three musketeers, all for one, one for all, gutty little pistons with no stars, beat the big bad Goliath with all their Hall of Famers, like was a, like a, a, a over-mythologized narrative. It really wasn't the full truth. The pistons that was actually, also a rough postseason that year for the Lakers. It was a rough one. Oh, it was rough. No doubt. And that was a huge disappointment. And they crash and they burn and everyone's now out, right? Shaq does get traded. I'm just talking about before the finals. They go in and they 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 go to, down 0-2 to the Spurs. They yeah. have trouble in the early rounds uh against the Rockets. They had some trouble. It was a that was a tough, even before the finals. They were battered going into that final series. And I would say that if I had to point to like one primary thing as to why they they lose to the Pistons, like it's a bunch of things, not least of which is that Malone was hurt again. And so now you've got Slava Medvedenko guarding Rashid Wallace, um, among other things. But Kobe's going one on five. He's ignoring Shaq. Shaq and Kobe, of all the ups and downs they had, and right when they would come together and be on the same page, they were unbeatable. And then they would fray again. And it was this up and it was, I always describe it as this roller coaster. Like it wasn't this linear thing, like, oh, they didn't get along and then they did and then it was fine. It's like, no, they did, then they didn't, then they did, then they didn't. And it was, a constant cycle of having to like refashion this relationship. But in those finals, Kobe, it was at that time, the worst field goal percentage of any series, any postseason series of his career. And he was forcing it. And Shaq was shooting at a high percentage. He wasn't the, the, as effective as he'd been a couple of years earlier, but still Shaq was, was still dominant. And those two are the reason that they didn't win. Not because, oh, Gary Payton, Carl Malone and everything else. Like there's a little of everything. But Horace Grant was like, you know, creaky and, and, and toward the end. And Rick Fox, everybody was like on their last legs. Uh, or a lot of them were. So it was a lot of things that that went into that. But I don't look at that as this, uh, what I, like what I said, was, was became the narrative at the time and has endured all these years. It wasn't the failure of a super team. It was really the failure of Shaq and Kobe. Okay, here's some like journalists nerd questions for you. Um, what was it like from a coverage standpoint covering, I'd say from 2000 to 04, what was it like covering that on a day-to-day basis as, as a beat writer? Was it, was it, was it hard? Was it hard? What did you think something was going to come every single day? I'm basically asking the questions I ask you over dinner um, right now. <laughs> what, what was that like? 
Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll give like seventy percent of what we discussed at, at dinner. I guess um, <laughs> I'll withhold a few things. But no, like it. The, my my first answer is like the last thing that any fan wants to hear, right? Because they think our our jobs are are so amazing, and they are in so many ways. But the my first the first word that always comes to mind is stressful. It was stressful, and like, did I see a bunch of like amazing basketball, historic basketball? Yes, you can't appreciate it in the moment because you're on deadline. You're competing against a bunch of other really great people. Who are you writers. going against? Saturday days. Who are we going against? Who are we going against? Who are the G's that we was going up against? So I first start covering the Lakers in 97. Scott Howard Cooper is, is covering them for the LA Times. He'd been on the beat for years and was excellent. And I, I learned Legend. a ton, ton from Scott Howard Cooper. And then he hands it off to Tim Kawakami, who's just uh, an absolute badass on the beat. And we go out, uh, uh, you know, up against each other for a couple of years. And then Tim Kawakami hands off to Tim Brown, who is an incredible reporter and writer. And so, and that's just at the LA Times, right? There was uh, Kevin Ding and a few others at the Orange County Register. There was Brad Turner covering for various, Brad Turner has worked for, I think, every single paper in the <laughs> entire region, maybe all of Southern California. BT, correct me if I'm wrong. Shout out to BT. B, B, BT's resume, uh, it, it takes a lot. you got to go really small type to fit it all on one because he's he's he has hit all of them. He's at the LA Times now. He's one of the all-time greats. Love you, BT. Um, yes, sir. But he was, at, he was at Riverside at one point, and he was, I think... I can't remember. Uh, San Bernardino was it? I I I, I apologize for uh, not remembering Brad's resume, but um, there were a lot of people on the beat, a lot of really good, high quality people, and so you're competing day in day out against that. And then on any given day, so all the big names on that team had a guy, they had a national guy, right? So Shaq had Mike Wise, who was at the New York Times back then. Oh, yeah. So anytime Shaq really wanted to like unload or give an exclusive, he's going to Mike Wise. If Kobe wanted to unload, and he did. He goes to Rick Bucher, who was at ESPN Magazine at the time, and you can or like Jim you, Gray, right? Or Jim or, Gray, or Jim Gray for a couple of key moments too. Um, but like, there's a there's a story in the 2000 2001 season, I think it was, coming off the first championship, where Kobe gives the quote about, you know, people want me to turn my game down, I'm going to turn my game up, and that was a Bucher exclusive. And then you had Phil Jackson going to Sam Smith, his longtime buddy over at, at the Chicago Tribune, who he has a longstanding history with. So you're just constantly like looking over your shoulder on this beat, right? There's all the other beat writers and everybody's really good on this beat. So there's that competition, plus people coming in from the national scene. And like, so it was, it, dude, it's stressful. Like, I, 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 I know- And like, you're, you're at the Daily News and you know that they're going to give like, they're, they're, they're going to drop leak to the Times. Like, you know that that's going to happen. And we're out- Plus we're we're just we're outgunned, man. Like I had yeah. I had I had no full time backup. I would just work like seventy five straight days. If I took a day off, it would it would be you know like a preps writer filling in for me for a day. Although some of those preps writers were really good because one of the people who would fill in sometimes when I was off for a day was Ramona Shelburne, who mm. has turned into a yeah. badass of her own. But back then, yeah, yeah. Ramona was it that was in her her her. Uh, yeah, her early days with the LA Daily News. She was she was uh, just learned the ropes. So you know. I didn't have a full-time backup. The LA Times had multiple people and they had multiple people who had covered the, the Lakers in previous eras too. Plus they had Adande, they had Plaschke, Mark Heisler, like all these guys. I just felt like, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there with my like, you know, little like cap gun and, and they've got like an arsenal. Yeah. Have you seen Harlem Knights? 
I don't know if no. you've seen Hollow Knight. No. Okay, there's this <laughs> there's this scene with Arsenio Hall, right? You got to watch Harlem Nights. There's a scene with Arsenio Hall where they have the one guy has a machine. He has a Arsenio Hall has a machine gun, and I'm, I'm saying this is the L.A. Times. And then there's this other dude. They're trying to shoot at Eddie Murphy in the film, and uh, uh, Arsenio Hall is going shooting his his gun. And every once in a while, this little dude has his little starter pistol and goes. Pow! And then he and then, it's, and then after a while, I think Arsenio shoots the guy with the pow. I think that was you. You were the Daily yeah, News. You're a little yeah, pow. Yeah, yeah, that was me yeah. laying on the floor bleeding out. Um, yeah, I, you know, I got my wins here and there. Um, but yeah, it, look, it, it's so. Plus, there's just the stress of it's. I'm a newspaper reporter who has to write every single day. Right, um, that's the job. So. You're always on deadline. You're always banging out a story. You're always transcribing, writing, rin- you know, wash, rinse, repeat. So, like, I have memories of of certain games and certain moments. Like, I always think about my one of my favorite all time plays that I covered was their life for, in which I wrote a, a massive oral history of uh, when I was at Bleacher Report a couple of years ago. Was the lob Kobe to Shaq Game Seven Western Conference Finals in 2000 against the Blazers? That huge comeback from 15 down in the fourth quarter and that play defining not only that season, but the entire era in a lot of ways launched the era. At the time that happens, we're already, like we've written entire stories about like the Lakers lost. When you get to the fourth quarter and the team you cover is down 15, you have pr- not pre-written, but as, as the game is unfolding, you're on deadline. You're just writing. Lakers lose, you know, 67 win season down the drain, but hey, it was just your wonder to Phil Jackson. They'll come back next year. There'll probably be some changes, blah, blah, blah. You're writing this whole like, what we call basically an obit, right? We're writing an obit for the season. And then suddenly that 15 point leads down to 13 and then it's 11, then it's nine. What is your story? Like, when are you like, my story's fucked up? At what point, what, at (sighs) what point in the, in the fourth quarter are you like, fuck during that time? I think every, every, just as they're chipping away, it's kind of was like, it when Kobe got like, the block or was it like when they, like, where, where are you like, cause I've been there before yeah. and you're like, fuck. And you're I don't like, remember ah, like ah. specific plays, but it's, it's like, first it's like, huh? Okay. Well, that's interesting. Oh shit. Oh, wait. Oh, oh fuck. And it's like little fuck, fuck, fuck. Oh, f- oh fuck. Oh shit. Oh <laughs> God damn it. I got to start rewriting this whole fucking thing. Delete, 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 delete. Um, it it like how that long is your gamer? How many words is your gamer? Yeah, like eight hundred to a thousand words. It's, that's oh, just phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> but that like so that's what's happening. By the way, quick aside on that one. So I always tell people like, hey, we have no rooting interest. I have no emotional investment in the teams I cover or in the league at large. All true, but we have a personal interest. And my personal interest at that time was that one of my best friends, Sean, was getting married the next week at his family's ranch in the middle of nowhere, Nevada. And it was going to be very hard to get to regardless. But if the Lakers were out, I could make the wedding. If the Lakers won and were going to the finals, I was going to be at game one in Indianapolis. Um, or no, game, excuse me, game one at Staples. And then eventually having to go to Indianapolis. I can't remember exactly how the calendar fell with where his wedding was. But point being, I was suddenly realizing, because in my head, I'm going, all right, cool. They're going to lose. Season's over. I'm writing this obit. Tomorrow, I do a quick follow-up story. We do the locker clean-out day. i got a couple more stories. And then I'm done. I go to Sean's wedding. Cool. Everything's great. And so literally this, all this stuff's going through my head too. Yes, I'm on deadline watching one of the most historic comebacks in NBA history. And I'm thinking about, I'm going to get to go to the wedding. Oh shit, I'm not going to get to go to the wedding. <laughs> so wait, this where is- are you? <laughs> oh my God, I'm so, I'm so triggered. I'm so triggered. What, <laughs> where are you at when he, like at the lob in terms of like where your story is at? And then when, when Kobe throws the lob, are you like, 
are you looking or are you like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I'm almost done with this rewrite. I got a couple more sentences. I have to, where are you at in that moment? And then just give me through that. Who are you sitting next to? Where are you at? What's going on? Yeah. So back then at Staples Center, we're sitting baseline and we're on the baseline that the Lakers bench is on, but on the opposite side of the stanchion, right? So we're in the corner where Denzel Washington sits. Um, and I'm I'm among the seats closer to the basket. I think Kevin Ding from the Orange County Register was sitting to my left back then. Maybe Tim Brown was to my right, or excuse me, no, it would have been Kawakami to my right. Um, Brad Turner's somewhere in that row. So we're that first row on the court baseline. And that play happens at the opposite end. So the camera angle that you often see where you see the back of Kobe, you know, sizing up Scotty Pippen, dribbling in front of Scotty, then crosses over Scotty. And, no, and hold on, hold on. It crosses the fuck out of Scotty Pippen. I cannot <laughs> emphasize this enough. And Scotty was cold. Scotty was cold still back then. He was still one of the best defenders of the league. And Scotty he got, was still ah. great. <laughs> Kobe loved, loved showing up Scotty. Kobe, man, the second Kobe became a full-time starter for that team, when they would go against Scotty, he couldn't wait. Because Scotty would do Scottie. shit like hit him in the back when his back is hurting but and also stuff. Because and like he try was, to, he was Scotty. That's Michael's yeah. guy. Kobe wanted to fuck him up. Um. Anyway, so yes, cross the fuck out of him. Thank you for correcting me. And so I'm seeing this evolve from behind. When Kobe goes up, I think he's going to shoot it. And I was heartened to find out all these years later, when I did this oral history two years ago, when I talked to Brian Shaw and Derek Fisher and a bunch of other people for the story, it was about maybe 50-50. A lot of them thought, because it's Kobe. Of course he's going for the shot. Some of them said, no, no, no. I knew I could see he was setting up the lob. But I think the majority, actually, of the people I talked to on Blazers and Lakers, who I interviewed for that story, said they thought he was going for the shot. It's Kobe. Of course he is. So I see him raising up and his his, his hands moving up with the ball in it. I thought it was he was kind of lofting a shot from, um, you know, from the top of the key there. And so it's out of like the side, this is my peripheral vision because I'm locked in on the back of Kobe. It's my peripheral vision where I see like this, this, this large object moving in from, you know, right to left. Oh no, shit. There's Shaq coming in for that dunk. So it takes you by surprise. And it took a lot of people there by surprise on the court and in the stands. Not everybody saw it evolving because Kobe's going up. You think he's shooting and maybe Shaq's just coming in for the, for like you know, the rebound or the tip in in case he missed. And so, and the place just fucking explodes. It is one and of those. Shaq is up like a DeAndre Jordan in his prime, right? As yeah. big as he is, just like he got up mm. there. <laughs> yeah, he got yeah. he got up there. Um, and I think the lob was like a little bit behind him too. So like Shaq had to kind of reach back for that one. Um, incredible play, incredible moment. And they're already up at that point. I, I sh you know, I'm going to screw this up. They're up by at least a couple points. They might've been up by four and that may extends it to six. So the comeback has already happened, but there's still like, you know, a minute plus to go. They could still screw this up. And the Blazers were a really talented team. Um, and so it's not, that's the moment when you think it's over, right? That is the, that is the killing blow. The comeback was already devastating to the Blazers, but that is the knockout. And as you're writing, now, all of a sudden, you've got this defining moment, um, but there's a minute left of the game, and as soon as the game is over, you're supposed to be hitting send. Yeah. And so... It, are are like, you on a typewriter? you have to go to a fax machine or some <laughs> shit? Like, what did, did you, Do you have email then? I don't even know. Brutal. Brutal. Chisel and slate, my man. You're, Chisel you're and pushing, slate. You're pushing, out, you're pushing Brad. Get the fuck out of the way, Brad. I gotta, I gotta put this in the thing. I gotta put this in a fax machine. <laughs> nah, it's... Uh, I was, uh, it, was, it was like some piece of crap, like old compact running windows or something 
Um, yeah, we baby. Didn't, we didn't even have Mac laptops then. Daily News is kind of cheap, to be honest. Um, yeah. But so yeah, but we're and then we're emailing it in. But um, but yeah, like you're you're just that's why I say stress. When people ask about what's the overriding feeling covering that time, it's stress because like there's the chaos and the tensions of Shaq and Kobe and all the drama going on there. Um, there's a lot of great basketball, but between all the the chaos and drama, which look, it's not my chaos and drama, but I'm immersed in it every day. It can't help but affect you on some level. Plus, just like I say, the churn, the deadline, the competition. It's only later that you look back and you go, damn, I saw some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I got to cover some amazing players. In the midst of it, you're focused on the job, you know? And yeah. you might have this quick moment of, oh, holy crap. And that happens. Like, there's a moment where, oh, man, wow, that was amazing. But then it's right back to bang, 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 bang on the keyboard. Yeah. Wow. Man, I know we got to get you out of here, but there's a segment we like to call and that you are, since you are a guest host, you are required to participate. Uh-oh. It is called Real One of the Week, where we shout out a person, an entity, or an organization that won the week, Howard Beck. So I'm going to go first because I didn't give you prompt on this. We just went no. right into it. So I'm going to give you some time to figure that out, about 30 seconds. I am going to go. I forgot the homie's name, but he is at curfew in, uh, in Memphis, he is a fan of the podcast. Um, I was talking to one of the homies. I, w- I went to go get some food out here in Memphis. I was talking to one of the homies, and he recognized my voice from the podcast and just and said, what's up? He was the server. So shout out to the homie. Forgot your name, bro, but I love Memphis, and I love you. So shout out to you. Shout out to Curfew. Make sure y'all tap into Curfew and go get the, gr- <laughs> the grilled octopus appetizer, which is amazing. It's to die for. It's awesome. It's right by FedEx Forum. It's really great. <laughs> shout out to the homie from Memphis, and shout out to all my homies from Memphis. I'll be back at some point. I love you. That's my uh, moment of the week. Recognized by your voice. Yeah, Damn. man. Yeah. Logan, man, dude, that's all new levels of, of fame right there, man. Like, that's yeah. that's impressive. I'm still stunned when somebody, like, recognizes just me, like, in a subway or something, which happens occasionally. I'll get, like, a what up back because they're, not because they're fans of mine, they're fans Saw of Zach, Zach Lowe, Lowe last night. Saw Zach Lowe last night. He's a good, one of the first times I actually talking to him. Great dude. Phenomenal dude. Also friend of the show. Zach's the best. Um, I'm still not used. It's still jarring to me when anybody even recognizes my my face, but like by voice, like dude, you're that's all new levels right there, man. Uh, you're the real one. You're got to be the real one of the week. We we got to hang out. We had dinner in Brooklyn. We hung out for an entire Nets Jazz game in which we like paid attention to maybe like five plays because we were just too busy like you know bullshitting about the NBA and life and careers and stuff, which was fun. Uh, it was great, man, because you and I have known each other for a while, but we haven't really had that time to just like sit down and we just became like BFS in that in that game. We became like BFS, bro. That was awesome. It was cool. <laughs> It was re- it was really tight. Thank that you. That was great. That was great. No, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you got to uh, spend some time out here. I'm looking forward to uh, whatever is coming from your trip out here, which I assume was was fruitful. And um, uh, can't can't wait to see uh, all your stuff coming in the ringer. Man, thanks so much, man. Make sure you check out Howard Beck on the Crossover Pod. Yeah, Crossover yeah. Pod. I got that. Yeah, yes. yeah. Make sure you check that out. That has been our Thursday edition of Real Ones. Make sure you check check this out real quick. Hold on. I'm about to put this little slate together. Sasha, trying to make Sasha Mac proud. All right. In the meantime, before we guys see you guys on Monday, make sure you check out Upside High. Make sure you check out Group Chat. Make sure you check out the answer. Make sure you. Ch- I don't have the list right now. I'm just gonna keep on going. I'm keeping on going. Make sure you check out the void. Fall on the void.
Floyd with KOC. Make sure you check out the mismatch. I saw Chris Vernon. Berno is a character. Saw him for the first time. Met him in person in Memphis. And also, let's keep the propaganda going. Raj's not here, but I'm going to keep it going. Make sure you check out what R2C2 with who? Oh, wait. Raja Bell's not here. That is CC Sabathia. Baleo legend, Crest Eye Clown. Make sure you check out Black Girl Songbook. Season three is here with Town Legend, Daniel Smith. We will see you guys on Monday. Shout out to Beck. Shout out to the free world. Holla. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>